Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Diana Butler Bass about her new book entitled Freeing Jesus, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as a Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Diana Butler Bass is an award-winning author of 11 books, including Grateful, Grounded, Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. She is a popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of, the, one of America's most trusted commentators, I think, on religion and contemporary spirituality, especially where faith intersects with politics and culture. She has a PhD from Duke. She has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, HuffPost, multiple global news outlets. She's a popular speaker at conferences, colleges, and universities, and churches across North America and really around the world. She lives in Alexandria, Virginia, not far from where I'm sitting right now, with her husband, daughter, and dog. <laughs> so uh, she's also a dear friend. So let me let me say that from the start, that I admire a great deal. So thank you for joining us, Diane. Well, it is wonderful to be with you, Jim. I've, I've looked forward to a time we would get on the radio together and talk about books and God and things we love. Well, Diana and I love a lot of the same things, enjoy, and Diana, uh, we talk about this stuff together a lot. So let me start with this. Uh, a lot's going on all around us. Um, Diana, how is your spirit these days? That's a really good question. I, I think that my spirit is moving in two directions, which is a little odd. You know, it's both Easter, we're taping right after Easter, and I, I feel that this year. I feel I feel the power of spring. I feel the power of uh, Jesus appearing in a new way, you know, in the world. I feel the power of a God who says no to death. So so that's um, generative and beautiful. Uh, but then I was just listening to the news and I was watching the Derek Chauvin trial coming from uh, Minneapolis and there's so many questions about where we're going as a nation. And those questions have my soul kind of pondering and praying. And, and I think like a lot of people who uh, care about these issues deeply, you know, worried. So I've got both things going on. I've got the joy of Easter and I've got a bit of the worry of the world. Which reminds me that um, to remember that in our Christian tradition, Easter is not just a Sunday, but it's a season. Not just a Sunday which just passed, but it really is a season in our liturgical calendar, if you if you will. And we're going to need a lot of hope in the weeks ahead. So I'm reminded these days of how Easter needs, especially in these days, to be a season for us, a season of, of hope, which your book really provides for me. It really does. 
Well, thank you. I, I like to think about Easter that way too. It's 50 days, not just one Sunday. And and really, I suppose if we were uh, listening to the wisdom of the poet Wendell Berry, who urges us to practice resurrection, Easter is in effect every day. That's true. <laughs> so I, I, I might be <laughs> leaning into that one a bit more in the coming months. Okay, well, let's begin. Um, 47%. 47% could be a book title. And is the newly released poll by Gallup on how many Americans still consider themselves members of a congregation, not just Christian, but Jewish and Muslim too. 47% lowest in American history. How does your new book, Freeing Jesus, relate to that remarkable new statistic in America? Most of my work over the last decade has been anticipating that demographic tsunami of religious disaffiliation. So I've been thinking about the coming, um, you know, sort of loss of membership, the the ways in which American religion has been shifting uh, for almost a dozen, maybe 15 years now. So, so this particular project, Freeing Jesus, fits into that because there are so many people who now have left the religions of their birth, Christians who have left the churches that they were once members of. And I often hear people who tell me, oh, I'm no longer a Christian. I just can't be a Christian anymore. I just can't do church any longer. I, it, it, it's so hypocritical or what have you, all the critiques about people who are from people who have left um, religious communities. But they almost always say as a follow-up to that, you know, but I, but I still love Jesus and I still want to follow Jesus. And so that, that comment, which I've heard for so long now uh, from so many people, becomes the, the question in the background of this book. Indeed, you and I have talked about uh, this growing category. In fact, the largest, you might say, new denomination in America is those who check the box, none of the above in religious affiliation surveys. They're called the nuns. Now, you and I both have a very close relationship with Catholic religious women who are the core of Jesus' followers in many ways around the country, but not those nuns, N-U-N-N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. But I I find myself enjoying uh, speaking to and relating to the nuns, the, the none of the above, and I think you do too. I do. And you know, I have this funny memory. I don't know if you share it or not. Um, you, you might remember it when I talk about it. I think it was about a dozen years ago um, during one election cycle when we were both interviewed for CNN. And um, CNN was really interested in the question of, you know, how is it that we can get evangelicals or how is it you can get Christians, you know, more uh, paid attention to by the Democratic Party. And I, I can remember what my response was in that conversation. I said, yes, that's an important thing. And, you know, Sojourners, of course, in your work has done that for years, trying to get uh, liberal, uh, liberal political uh, folks to pay attention to religion and how that functions. Uh, but I remember saying, you know, one of the bigger problems uh, for liberal communities, for the Democratic Party, is going to be this the growth of 
of the non-religious. And that is how do you put the nuns, the people who have no religious affiliation, together in a coalition with Black Protestants and with um, you know the few white evangelicals who go along with Democrats and liberal mainliners? And so I can I can remember that conversation that we had, you know, all that time ago. And um, it, it at the time when we first were talking about that, it was it was startling to the reporter who had never really thought about the that issue in quite those ways. But, you know, over that, those intervening years, I think both you and I have found great wisdom and benefit um, in having conversations with people who are questioning uh, conventional religion and who are finding an awareness of God um, often in justice work, on the streets, in protests. And, um, understand that God doesn't just show up on Sunday morning, but shows up all kinds of places with where people are suffering and where people are uh, trying to work for, for peace and justice. Indeed. In fact, none of those who check the none of the above uh, box, uh, most of them by the statistics believe in God or they want to talk about Jesus nevertheless. And I was struck in your book in the beginning by, uh, I love the question your friend asked of you, who was Jesus really? Who was Jesus really? So let me ask you, who is Jesus for us today? In the introduction to Freeing Jesus, you frame the book as being about Jesus Christ of experience, as opposed to Jesus the Jewish peasant or Christ the king. Share with us what you mean by that. So who is Jesus for us today? Well, certainly Jesus is still the the Jewish peasant of 2,000 years ago. And theologically, I am part of a tradition that insists that, that Jesus is indeed Christ the King. But the way that I set that part of the book up is talking about a really old argument that goes on in scholarship. And for about 125 years, um, scholars and people who teach theology and who train ministers have said, well, there's the Christ, the, the Jesus of history, and then there's the Christ of faith. And so this division uh, between the Jesus of history, the peasant 2000 years ago, and the Christ of faith, the Jesus who's known through the creeds and the confessions of the church, that's become a huge conflict where you have certain kinds of Christians looking in one direction and you have certain other Christians looking in the other direction. And I can literally go through the bookshelf in my office and pull down the books that, oh, look, here are all the Jesus of history books. And um, some of them are written by very good friends of mine. And then you'll pull down all the, the Christ of faith books. And, and there's many of those too. And some of those people are good friends of mine. But they have lots of arguments that I think ultimately wind up being kind of unproductive. And so I wondered, you know, if there was a whole different way of conceptualizing how we thought about Jesus so that we might be able to walk through and beyond uh, that argument between uh, history and faith and ask ourselves the question, where do we really discover Jesus? And when I thought about my my own journey, um, I knew Jesus long before 
I had gotten a PhD in religion and knew anything about the Jesus of history. And I also really knew Jesus um, in terms of faith uh, when I was teeny tiny. I can't remember a time I never knew Jesus' name, uh, but I, there were certainly those young years I didn't know the creeds and I didn't know about the doctrine of the Trinity and I didn't know about Jesus being fully human and fully divine, all that kind of stuff. And so even before the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, Jesus was there with me. And I thought, well, you know, that's a really interesting invitation um, to people is to write a book about the Jesus of experience, how Jesus has shown up in our lives, and see if we can start framing a new conversation that might be more life-giving um, for the church as it turns into a sort of a remnant community in the, the 21st century. Now, you frame, you frame it beautifully in that kind of way. And then you each chapter clearly uh, talks about Jesus as one is friend, teacher, savior, Lord, way, and presence. Now, we're not going to have time to go through all of those. That's why you all should read this book, because every chapter is worth reading. Let's start with the first one, though. You write a chapter on Jesus' friend, and you write this. You say, the story of the New Testament is that the risk of friendship is the risk that frees us from fear and reshapes our lives. It's better to go together than to go alone. Jesus befriends us, opening our hearts to genuine love and the capacity to forgive each other, welcome all, and act justly in the world. <laughs> that's very that's very compelling. How do we cultivate a more expansive friendship with Jesus? And you also relate your family's roots in the Quaker tradition. Can you say more about that? Um, it- a few years ago, I was writing a, another book, a book called Grounded, and that involved searching out my family history because I wanted to find out, you know, who my family really was, where I was grounded in the world, as it, as it were. And as part of that project, I had this absolutely stunning discovery um, that the roots of my family go back to the earliest settlement um, in the state of Maryland, where some a particular ancestor of mine came from Scotland and he was a Quaker and joined the Quaker meeting in a small town, the building, the Quaker meeting building that he helped build in 1670 is actually still in, in use. And um, so, so I, I had no idea. My family had always been Methodist um, and I became an Episcopalian when, when I was older, but um, here was this, this family story about being Quaker and when I discovered that, it made sense to me because theologically, I think that I lean a lot into the Quaker tradition, which is an which emphasizes that there is an inner light in every one of us that is the light of God. And because of this inner light, uh, we human beings are all equal. So with that as a, a little bit of a background, the story that I tell, in this book is less about me and more about the fact that um, it's to, to my sadness, I think the, the Christian tradition as a whole has often downplayed friendship 
and the exception to that rule is or or are the Quakers and the former formal name of the Quakers is the 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 Society of Friends and you know here they've built this entire community and this entire religious tradition around this idea of friends and uh, to try to explain that uh, to readers how radical that was um, in the 1600s, when the Quakers were founded, they were founded in England um, by by George Fox and a small uh, band of followers, is that when a person who had been convinced of this um, inner light and that the world wasn't structured by hierarchies, but instead was structured around this radical equality of everyone in God, um, they used to uh, talk to other people um, in their, you know, their neighborhoods and the towns and the villages where they lived, according to those norms. And so say a Quaker was walking down a street and he would run into a squire. And of course, in England in the 16, 1600s, if a le- lower class person ran into a higher status person, they were supposed to say, good day, my Lord, or step aside or what have you, and give deference to the person who was above them in the social hierarchy. But the Quakers got in so much trouble because they wouldn't say that. They would say things like, oh, um, how how art thou today, so-and-so, you know, uh, John Smith? And so they wouldn't use the title. And although we think of the word, you know, say, how art thou, or how goes it with thy soul, something like that, we think of those thous and these and thys as the formal English version, but that's not the case. That's the informal version of English, which has disappeared over the century. And so when you say to someone, how, how goes it with thy soul or how art thou? It's like saying, Hey dude, how, how are you doing today? (laughs) And, and so the Quakers literally treated everybody like equals and that got them in so much trouble. It got them arrested. It got them hanged. It got them exiled. And um, then they built their their political uh, vision around that. And they also uh, built their churches around that insight. So I found out that I was actually a Quaker um, by, by birthright. And that makes uh, perfect sense <laughs> of who I am. And um, I, just lo- I just love that tradition. I think it's so beautiful and it's very powerful. So the idea of friendship, they move front and center, that we're friends with one another and that we're friends with God. And it's a rare um, moment in the history of Christianity that that becomes sort of the shining uh, center point of a community. You know, um, you say the Quakers try to apply this to public life, and indeed they do, even the politics. And as you probably know, they're, uh, they're FCNL, the Friends Committee on national legislation has an office right on Capitol Hill and a big sign on the building says, love your neighbor dash no exceptions, love your neighbor, no exceptions. And uh, it's a great segue to this, this question. You and I have both written books recently about Jesus and uh, this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, which has changed our lives in the world has been, I think revelatory in so kind, so many ways. It reveals our inequities, our racial economic inequities. It has, it has showed, it's made them credible. These inequities that people speak about, it showed well indeed they are indeed real, and so it's revealed 
what does that reveal about Jesus? Uh, how do you believe Jesus is speaking to our current moment as a country in the midst of pandemic and stark racial inequities? Uh, that's one of the reasons why I feel like my soul is a bit disquieted, is that um, n- not only the inequities, which, you know, I was certainly theoretically and practically aware of. I mean, I know that those things exist. I, I've experienced them. I've listened to those testimonies. I've watched, uh, you know, suffering of people who are at the short end of the stick there. But there's also a sort of a fundamental selfishness that I think has been revealed. And I, you know, I hate sounding judgmental uh, about that. But the one of the things that really upsets my heart is the fact that you can't get certain communities of Christians to wear masks or people literally think that the pandemic has been made up. And so there's this kind of carelessness in an inability to understand that you don't wear a mask so that you don't get sick, but you wear a mask so that you don't get your neighbor sick. And it's not about your freedom, but it's about a commitment that we all have to keep our neighbors alive so that we can enjoy true freedom together, you know, as, as part of a society based in the common good. And so to see so many people, including people in my own family, uh, say things like, Oh, well, you know, you'll never get me to wear a mask or literally to criticize other people in my family for deciding to wear, for wearing masks or for getting vaccinated or for socially distancing, um, and say, you know, Oh, you're just sheep. You're just, you know, you're not, you, you don't understand. Nobody's going to take away my right to walk into public without my face covered. And so, so there's the issue of equity, which is always there and consistently part of our a calling to live more like Jesus. And that goes to the stuff I was just talking about with the society friends and that whole doctrine of the inner light. But then comes this other part and uh, very specifically related to the book. While my youngest image of Jesus was that of friend, um, the next way that I learned about Jesus growing up in mostly a liberal Methodist uh, church was that Jesus was a teacher. And the most important thing I remember from childhood and sitting in that church, you know, year after year through elementary school was this never ending. Jesus calls us to love God and love our neighbors. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And I I think that Jim, one day, you know, if you outlive me, that has to go into my eulogy you know, the, the, or an, on my tombstone. I mean, if there's, if I forget everything else about the gospels, if I forget everything else about any kind of moral teaching, those I think are going to be the last words on my lips. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I learned that in Sundays, kindergarten, Sunday school. And Jesus taught that. And that's what my church drilled into us as when I was a child. Well, whenever asked, uh, Jesus said, this is the core, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor uh, as yourself. Uh, no exceptions. 
Um, when we talked about your book, I remember the first time, uh, it struck me that, well, here's the question. Why is this one of the first books about Jesus written by a woman that I can recall? And as I sit here and talk to you, I'm in my own my own home office, and I've got two whole shelves of Jesus books. These are books about who he was and what he meant and what that means for us. And there isn't hardly a book on the shelf except for your new one that is written by a woman talking about Jesus. So why is that? Why is this one of the first books about Jesus written by a woman that that I can recall? The same thing when I started this project. And there are some books written by um, evangelical women, um, women who would be a bit more theologically conservative than myself. And I can go to Barnes and Noble and find some of those. Like, I think her name is Sarah Young. She wrote a book called Jesus Calling. Um, the, the, and uh, Sarah Bessie, who is a wonderful person act, uh, and lives in Canada, she wrote a book called Jesus Feminist. And so I, I think what happens with uh, the books that women write is that they tend to be uh, somewhat more devotional, or they tend to also be focused around the particular issue of Jesus and women. So that's, uh, I think, one of the sets of problems about Jesus, you know, writing books, uh, women writing books about Jesus is they tend to be very niche. Um, when it comes to the kind of broader books about Jesus, um, women who are more in my, tra the tradition that I find myself in now, um, and that is, uh, you know, mainline, more liberal Protestantism, uh, those women have been, been really busy in the last two, three, four decades, trying to gain credibility, mostly in the academic world. So there are lots of really wonderfully good um, technical books, academic books, written by women about Jesus, published by you know Oxford and Yale and Cambridge Press, things like that. But those aren't generally, you know, read by wide audiences that would walk into a Barnes and Noble. And then finally, uh, there are a couple really good books, actually, uh, written by uh, Jewish women about Jesus. Um, Amy, Amy Jill Levine, who is a wonderful Jewish woman and is a scholar of the New Testament, has written fine books about Jesus that are well worth reading. So, th But that's really it. It's kind of quirky. And so um, I decided that I would just kind of write a book that could go on your shelf. Well, this is a book uh, to go on your shelf and more important to uh, to shape your life. Uh, you recently wrote in a reflection titled Via Dolorosa, Minneapolis, the suffering crowd. Here's what you said. I think of what happened on that street in Minneapolis as regular people watched heartless authorities while a, while a man died unjustly. And I remember what happened on a street in Jerusalem to millennia ago. We're all watching trial now, Diane, as you know. Um, so relate that to we're watching this trial. I am every day. Uh, say more about how Christianity was birthed, birthed in a trauma, a trauma of witness. Uh, what have you been noticing as the country again turns its focus to the killing of George Floyd? Noticing the underlying kind of biblical story, the underlying biblical parallels that I see every day when I'm watching, watching the trial. Um, today, it just so happened that there was a testimony 
by a police officer who is tr- who was training other Minneapolis police officers, you know, how to deal with situations like this. And then it was very clear that the fellow who was doing the training did not approve of the way that Derek Chauvin handled uh, George Floyd. But they, but Chauvin's lawyer got up um, to the stand and started, you know, attacking and questioning uh, the testimony that was just given. And one of the things he said is, um, you know, if um, bystanders were there on the sidewalk yelling horrible things at the police officer, would that change the situation? Would that make it a situation where a police officer could apply more force? And I sat, I thought about that and it's just, it's like straight out of the Passion Week narrative in the New Testament when people blame the bystanders for the choice. It's very clear when you go into the Passion narrative that Jesus is not getting out of this alive and that this is going to be a phony trial. And a lot of people are conspiring um, to make sure that this guy is silenced. They're going to execute him. And so they put up all kinds of things to try to deflect blame from themselves. And one of the actions of the passion narrative is when um, Jesus is presented to the crowd. And instead of the authorities taking responsibility, they say, oh no, the crowd chose. The crowd did it. And there are today on the stand, um, the authorities, instead of taking responsibility for an action that they committed against an innocent person, um, they said, oh, it was the crowd. The crowd made me do it. And I, I literally thought, okay, well, get out the, 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 the sink and start washing your hands, you know, remove, removing the guilt. And so I, I think that as a writer and as just who I am, you know, this is kind of the way I see the world is that I've, I've lived with these biblical stories for so long and they are so deeply true to me. They say true things about the nature of God and the nature of the universe and human nature um, that I see them both in the pages of, of the Bible, of course, and I love reading scripture. I think it's a beautiful, wonderful devotional thing to do. Um, but I also see those stories echoed through history and up to the streets on which we live. And so, so my work tends to be very much like that is to take these threads of these most ancient stories, stories that are so worthwhile, whether you choose to go to church or not, these stories are so wise and they, they are at the, I think the very heart of what it means to be human. And, um, I try to take those stories and I try to make them make sense in this messy, crazy, chaotic, um, world that we live in and point the way through what seems to be a sort of a, a thicket of injustice and inequity and violence uh, towards the light that is through the trees, you know. And um, and I really do believe that that, that joy is, is really there, um, even when it seems obscured in the darkest of times. The power of the book is is in telling those stories. And then what you're doing right here is you're applying those stories to a trial we're all watching. So it's, it's understanding what the stories mean, but then applying that to literally the trauma that we watch and experience in our lives. 
every day. Never really thought about that, but you know that that crowd was traumatized in Minneapolis. And I think that the crowd um, in the passion narrative was probably traumatized. We know that the disciples were certainly traumatized. And you know what does it mean that Christianity was actually birthed in this traumatic event? You know what does that do, you know, emotionally, psychologically to a people. And then, of course, what does it do uh, when the Savior rises again? Um, and what are they being saved from? You know, that part of what is happening there is not just being saved for heaven in the future, but part of it is being healed uh, from this, this deep trauma salvus they experience the salvus of god the salvation of god um from this deep trauma of imperial violence that they've all just been you know taken through and i wish that christian theology and that christian history uh, there are places where we've gotten that but too often and too sadly we've become those who inflict the trauma rather than heal others from the trauma. And I think that's the great tension within Christianity. And um, it's, it's so past time to get over the tension. You know, it's, 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 it's well past time to, to, to let go of being the traumatizers and instead be the ones who are always standing with the victims and healing the world. And that again is, uh, is a, is a, perspective a viewpoint that a woman that a woman can tell women can tell in a different way i was struck by a quotation from you uh in your speech at the parliament of world's religions in 2015 and you quoted that in your book uh it's on to remind you 258 to 259 <laughs> would you mind reading that to us today. I didn't want to just comment on it. I'd love for our listeners to hear you read from your, the speech that you gave at that moment to a, an audience of, I believe, 3,000 women gathered from all over the world. Uh, and yeah, we were asked to, um, to just tell a short kind of story that would spiritually inspire the people who were gathered there. And it was, it was about 3,000 women. And this was a, a part of the parliament that happened before the main parliament assembly. And it was the first time that the parliament had ever done an event just for women. And it was so well attended. It was so beautiful. And so I shared this story about spiritual wisdom and um, I'll, I'll just read it. Last week I was at my neighborhood coffee shop. My favorite barista was there, a young Muslim woman. I noticed something different about her. She was not wearing her usual black hijab. Instead, she was wearing a bright green scarf edged with sparkling sequins. I love your scarf, I said. She looked pleased. You know, they told me I had to wear black. What? I asked. The rules. They said I had to wear black, but I didn't believe it. So I looked it up myself. And I don't have to wear black. I can wear any color I want. I didn't know whether she was speaking of some religious authority or her boss, but it didn't matter. She had searched the rules for herself, not listening to someone else's interpretation, but reading the text on her own. 
I looked it up myself. I looked it up myself has thundered through history. This is the stuff of what we Protestant Christians call reformation, of a new spiritual revolution. When women of the world take on words for themselves, when we seize our sacred texts and search them for truth, for wisdom, for strength, to interpret our traditions for ourselves, not to submit, but to claim authority and look it up for ourselves, to do that which we know to be beautiful and joyful and just. Women with the power of words can change the world. So I looked it up myself. (laughs) That just struck me uh, because that's what uh, African slaves did in this country in the book that some of their slave masters gave them. And they looked it up themselves and that transformed their lives and this nation, looking it up ourselves. <laughs> I, I loved your opening story um, in the book, um, uh, story of a voice you heard while praying in your favorite place at the National Cathedral. <laughs> Who was that speaking to you and what did the voice say? And then how might that relate to the cathedral having been closed now? For a year. I'm always a little worried about talking about this story in public, but I've now put it in print, so I guess I can't be quite that worried. <laughs> I guess not. I loved it. And that I is, it. I went to the National Cathedral, which, you know, is such a beautiful space, and um, I've always found it very refreshing to pray there. And so one day I was really struggling, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go over to the cathedral and, and pray at my favorite chapel, which is this place called the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. So I was kneeling at the altar and um, above me, and there's this you know beautiful altar with a painting above it, the altar piece that's called. And um, the altar piece is a vision of Jesus painted by N.C. Wyeth at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's, it's literally one of my favorite paintings of Jesus anywhere in a church, I think, in the United States. And so I'm I'm kneeling there and saying, God, where are you? Where are you? I, I need to hear you. I need to hear your voice, you know, and and it was kind of quiet. And then I heard this voice literally say, get me out of here. And I, I stopped and I went, I looked around, I looked over my shoulder. I, I, I mean, it was like somebody was talking and I, I I went back kind of praying again and I heard the voice a second time, get me out of here. And it was kind of more insistent the second time I looked up at the painting and I said, Jesus, are, are you, is that you? (laughs) And then the third time the voice came, because of course, always three times, um, the voice said a third time, get me out of here. And at that point, I was like so freaked out. And I and I did look over my shoulder and there was a priest way in the back of the church. And I was kind of scared that, you know, was was he going to hear the voice too? What was going on here? And so I literally ran out of the church. And um, my husband, I told him at the time that this happened in 2013, and uh, he has referred to this episode as that time that Jesus asked you to spring him from the slammer. And so um, it just stayed with me, you know, and I never really talked about it because I didn't want to 
irritate the people at the National Cathedral, and I didn't know what to make of it. But then, of course, over the years, it becomes a little bit more evident, you know, is that Jesus needs to leave the church because so many other, so many people are, you know, and for Jesus to really be with us um, in certain ways, I'm not trying to say that we don't need the church. I love churches and I'm grateful for them. But that the Jesus we know now needs to be a way freer than just the Jesus we meet in the in the confines, you know, of of a church building. So Jesus has to go out into the world. And um, you know, you know, the funniest thing about the pandemic is that um, if you wanted to go to the National Cathedral over the course of the last year and pray to Jesus or talk to Jesus or meet Jesus, you couldn't do it because the doors, of course, of the building were locked. And the irony of this whole last year is that if you wanted to meet Jesus, you had to do it around your dining room table or with your family, um, you know, in passing on the streets, you know, talking to your neighbors while wearing masks um, in your garden. Uh, And so Jesus, in effect, freed Jesus's own self from that cathedral and um, in order to be heard and discovered, uh, Jesus was on the streets. And I, you know, I think about how many amazing, you know, protests there were last summer, and how many of my friends actually did go to them, you know, appropriately masked and the like. Um, but they were, you know, speaking for those who had been killed in the streets. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's, that's so like Jesus, even when, when the door is locked, Jesus flees to the streets and um, takes up for victims of violence and the poor. And Jesus flees to our dining room tables and reminds us that in the most intimate places of our lives, um, Jesus is still there. So we just celebrated our second Easter in this pandemic. Uh, how... How has over a year of isolation, widespread grief, uh, clear injustice, and change impacted Easter for you? Have you seen Jesus in any unexpected places this past year, from the dining room table to the streets? And 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 it's interesting now for me, Diana. How do we come back to church? Uh, becomes an important question. With this second Easter, uh, I remember uh, there was a guy who said we should, it, the pandemic would end by last e- Easter, and he was wrong. And now we've gone through Easter again. And clearly, we can see Jesus. This isn't the way you just said. We see him in the streets, and people in the streets, some who haven't gone to church for a long time or haven't gone recently, uh, one of the Black Lives Matter movement leaders uh, in Ferguson told me how she found Jesus again in the streets, um, having left her church as a millennial. And so uh, how has this year, this, this, this time, changed our sense of who Jesus is and where he is? Bring that out for a long time to come. Um and, you know, you're just asking a very personal way, you know, how, how I've found Jesus, you know, in this last year. And I, I think I, I'm a little surprised by this, but 
the only place where we could really see one another's faces fully was, you know, through, through computer, you know, through the zoom screens. And it seems odd uh, to think that that was one of the places where I really did see Jesus. But when, you know, you go into a grocery store and everyone has got half of their face covered or when you, you know, or even having, like I said a moment ago, conversation in the street uh, with your neighbor, but you're both wearing masks, you lose that kind of that fullness of a person's face. And so the only place where we got that really was via Zoom. And I learned how to really look, you know, on Zoom. And also, I think, to try to be as natural and vulnerable as I could be through the through the screen. And, it, you know, the, the the oddest thing is it reminded me of all these crazy stories in the in the New Testament. Like the, there's a time when Jesus um, heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman and he he does it long distance. <laughs> the daughter doesn't even have to show up. And Jesus just says to the mother, you know, your faith has healed your daughter, go off. And so the idea that Jesus can be present um, in this way that is not necessarily, you know, the sort of the physical bodily presence, but Jesus can heal via Zoom, as it were. And and, and uh, so there's been that and there's been some, uh, you know, just... I think really beautiful moments. Um, a lot of people that I've been friends with for a long time who are more writerly friends, um, I found their eagerness to want to get together via social media really kind of beautiful. I had some wonderful conversations with like Jim Martin this year, just on Zoom. And I don't think we would have taken the time to do that um, had we not been in lockdown. And, and other friends of mine that I really value, you know, there's their spiritual wisdom and their, their presence in my life. So I'm, I'm surprised that people, you know, oh, too much Zoom or we're all Zoomed out, you know, but that's what we've had. And I think it's introduced us to the possibility of even this uh, virtual space being a space that God can inhabit. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And so that's good. But the other thing is I did go back to church this last Sunday. It was outside. We all sat six feet apart from one another. We wore masks, even though I'm fully vaccinated. I followed all the rules and it was the Easter service. It was only 50 people. And, um, that when the priest said, uh, welcome, welcome back. This is the first time we've been together for communion for more than a year. And then the priest started crying. And that was for me the holiest moment I could ever imagine of Easter. And then the whole congregation got completely choked up. And we went up and received in a very tender and socially distant way uh, the, the bread. No wine yet at my church. And um, I just knew I just knew that God was still there. You know, God was in the Zoom screen and God was on the lawn of St. Aidan's. Well, you know, my family and we had the same experience on Sunday. Our church for the first time met outside on the mall, actually, in that tent. And uh, first time we'd been together for a year. And I've been 
gotten used to going to church in my pajamas every Sunday, <laughs> virtually, you know, and and we we were there. It was a powerful experience just to be outside between between the Capitol and the monument to have our service there. Uh, it just brought up all these deep feelings inside of us in the same way. Maybe because it's Easter and because you talked earlier at the beginning about uh, this theological uh, conversation you have in the book about the the Jesus of faith and Christ the King. I mean, I'm sorry. Maybe it's because it's Easter. Let me start that again. And, and maybe it's because it's Easter uh, where we all say at the beginning of our services, I'm sure you did too, and we did, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's how we begin the Easter service. And maybe it's because of the conversation you have in the book and, and did today on uh, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith and often this argument between those two. Uh, I remember a conversation. I was speaking like you at a conference and two of the most famous Jesus seminar scholars were also speaking and they're friends of mine and yours. And, and over lunch, uh, the resurrection came up and one of them said, uh, Jim, do you believe in a literal resurrection, a historical resurrection? Jesus rose from the dead. And I said, yes, yes, I do. And then he said, well, we think it's more metaphorical, metaphorical. Um, and at that moment, they got into this conversation that you know well, of people on different sides of that argument that you also know well. Uh, and books have been written written about this. <laughs> so I didn't want to go into all those arguments yet again. What came to mind was this. I just said, um, well, do you believe that a merely metaphorical resurrection would have been enough for Desmond Tutu in South Africa? And there was this quiet silence over the table, and we just didn't even get back to, to, to the argument. We didn't. Because it wasn't theological, it was it, it was, but it was more than just arguments. Uh, and for me to be on the mall and have to hear to say, uh, "He is risen, He is risen indeed," for me is how uh, it's most possible for me to see Jesus in the way you do in this book as friend and teacher and savior and lord and way and presence that that it isn't just past teachings from a historical figure that that he is risen he is risen indeed think about this easter uh there's a hymn and a line in the, the hymn and it was sung at church on sundays death has done its worst and yet he is, he now lives. And so that's what I was trying to do in this book is, you know, walk past that old argument that has so often stumbled us, you know, and, um, I think not really communicated the, the depth of what it means for a Christian to say he is risen or Jesus lives. Um, you know, that's the arena of an incredible mystery. And it's also an arena of powerful, um, testimony. 
And um, I, I think about a friend of mine who actually was a very liberal uh, theological bishop who probably would have, if you ask him on some days, you know, said that the resurrection was mostly metaphorical. I, I ask, I ask him, uh, this was about 30 years ago, um, if he believed the resurrection was true. And I kind of half expected him to say something like that, you know, it was a metaphor. And he looked at me and he said, oh, it's true. I've seen it too many times for it not to be true. <laughs> and, and I, and, you know, he was giving me that experiential answer and there was such wisdom there. He was literally saying, you know, don't, don't get caught up in this part, but move on to the ground where it becomes part of you, you know, practice resurrection, feel resurrection, know that death has done its worst. And now Jesus lives. And in that moment, you know, I can have a comfortable and beautiful conversation with my radical, you know, Jesus of history friends and my very, um, you know, deeply worried uh, Christ of, of faith, uh, creedal oriented friends and say, hey, Jesus is alive. And what does that mean for us today? One of those scholars struck up a conversation email between us about this going forward. And uh, near the end of his life, he wrote and said, you know, it's all becoming less metaphorical to me now. <laughs> as I feel that need in, in my life. So, so anyway. Marcus Borg. Yeah, I know it, it had it to be because Marcus was on such a journey with all these things. And uh, I think he taught me a lot out of his uh, out of his both life and death of how to really embrace the full experience of Jesus. He was quite a witness there. Yeah, it was. And I'll just at the end here, recall how Easter in our tradition is not just a Sunday, but it is a season, 50 days, as you said. And we're going to need uh, much, much hope in the week's now ahead in this Easter season. So a blessing to be with you uh, for that conversation. Thank you for joining us. Wonderful to share this book with you. And uh, I thought of you a lot while I was writing it because I thought of your book. And uh, I, I just, you know, I, I, I really am happy to have my words join with yours on that shelf. Being on the same shelf with you is a blessing for me, and we got to all all of us take our books off the shelf shelf and live live them in our lives and on the streets, which we're learning more about every day. To hear more from Diana Butler Bass, follow her on Twitter at Diana Butler Bass. Follow her on Twitter at Diana Butler Bass, and read Freeing Jesus, which is available now online. And in the store, anywhere books are sold. Her website is dianabutlerbass.com, and she writes a twice-weekly newsletter, The Cottage, which can be found on Substack. Substack. Diana has an upcoming virtual event at Curious Iguana Bookstore. Curious Iguana Bookstore, Frederick, Maryland, on April 15th at 7 p.m., where she'll be in conversation with Reverend Barbara Kirshner Daniel of Evangelical Reform, probably online, I suspect, too. More information on CuriousIguana.com. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you for the Soul of a Nation. Mm-hmm.